Today on From the Heart, we're talking all about neurodevelopment in children with congenital and childhood heart disease. To help us understand this topic, pediatric cardiologist Dr. Rob Justo will join us. The majority of our children probably have a very normal neurodevelopmental profile, but we do know there is significantly increased risk within the group, and it's a specific type of risk. We'll also hear from Professor Will Parsonage about the research his team are leading into creating a national program to support the long-term neurodevelopmental needs of children with CHD. Well, it's really important, I think, that we do this so that we develop a system that does the best for the most people. I'm Sam Stolberg. I live with a congenital heart condition, and I'm one of your hosts on the From the Heart podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that we are recording on the land of the Gubby Gubby peoples, otherwise known as Queensland's Sunshine Coast. We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and the land that you're listening in from today. We pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging. I'm joining you from home in Brisbane. Actually, I work at the Queensland Children's Hospital and I've been a paediatric cardiologist there for probably 15 or 20 years now. Perfect. So you're the perfect man for our topic today. So let's get into it. What is neurodevelopment and what is the connection between CHD and neurodevelopment in children? Yeah, so neurodevelopment is a very broad term, but essentially it reflects the ability of the growing brain to develop normal functional ability to learn, to focus, develop memory and social skills, and also look after complex motor functions. When we look, look after children with congenital heart disease, obviously our primary focus is curing their heart problem and giving them a good survival. And in the current era, most of our children are surviving to an adult life. So that's sort of expected for our children now, which is very fortunate. And more importantly, we're looking at the quality of life of these children. And this is where neurodevelopment becomes very important. And I think it affects children at different stages along the way. And the reason our children are at risk of neurodevelopmental issues is really multifactorial. If you look at the development of the brain, that starts at the same time as the heart in the uterus. And so when a fetus is developing, if a child has an abnormal heart, there's some evidence that the abnormal blood flow to the brain, or some of these infants will have abnormal blood flow to the brain, which can affect brain development. Then once the babies are born, some of these babies can be quite unwell at the time of delivery. Then they require surgery to repair the heart. And some children we can repair the heart completely, but in other children we still leave them with residual lesions. And again, this can affect the circulation to the brain. And then finally, there's a period in intensive care after surgery. And there's very good evidence, no matter what the problem for the child, whether it's cardiac or another problem, the more time you spend in the intensive care environment, there is risk of neurodevelopmental issues. So it's really multifactorial. I understand not all CHD patients experience neurodevelopment difficulties, but are at an increased risk compared to general population. Do we know why specifically children with CHD are at an increased risk of experiencing the neurodevelopmental challenges? So it probably relates to those things I outlined before from inside the womb to time before surgery, surgery and after surgery. And I think what you said is correct. The majority of our children probably have a very normal neurodevelopmental profile, but we do know there is significantly increased risk within the group, and it's a specific type of risk. Most of our, if you look at our entire cohort of population, their intellect is probably in normal range, but then you're looking for specific issues beyond that. And it's probably the group of children who have more complex lesions and who have surgery under the first under one year of age who are at great at risk. But that's not a Absolute. Children who have things later in life still can be at increased risk. 
And this is probably my very basic knowledge of neuroscience and neurodevelopment in itself, but I'm sure that stress that obviously going through open heart surgery can put on a body will also hinder the neurodevelopment as well. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So it's a very intensive care is a very stressful environment and also the recovery and the ward, just simple things like having your normal sleep pattern disrupted will impact on your development. So there's a lot of invasive, abnormal things that happen in the hospital environment, which certainly has a short, very good evidence has a short-term impact and probably will have a long-term impact as well. And how can these neurodevelopmental difficulties impact someone over their life course? So I think in different stages of life it has different impacts and I think certainly we believe that cardiac children probably have quite a specific profile of issues that they have. There's a lot of research happening in that space and the profile is a little bit different. I think if you look at the newborn baby, also, the young infant, particularly if they have heart failure and they've been unwell, often you see motor delay in the first year of life is something you worry about most. You can Speech can be a little bit slow, but often you'll get catch-up. And the young infant and young child often doesn't have too many obvious issues going on. It's really when you hit school age, when you have, require higher intellectual function, that things can come to life. And I think there's starting school is a very critical point of detecting these things. When you look at the group of children this age, they can have problems with their learning function. Things like attention deficit disorder and hyperactivity are more common. And also they can have impaired numeracy and literary skills. And that can have impacts on learning, but also impacts on how children socialise with their friends and peers. And then when you get into high school, obviously you require higher levels of function in high school. And then when you get into adolescence, obviously in high school you require much higher levels of functioning. And the testing you'll look at in that age group is different but these children and young adolescents can have issues with cognitive function and flexibility it's often high level function so the ability to initiate plan and monitor and sustain work to solve problems again attention deficit disorder and it can impact on academic achievement particularly in mathematical areas and similarly you can have with hyperactivity emotional and social interaction problems so it can present in multiple ways during the growing child and I guess when you get into adult life, if you've had that experience during your growing up periods, it will impact on your ability to get a job, perform in the workplace, and then obviously social interactions and forming relationships. I'm kind of glad that I can put my terrible math skills, at least blame it on my my congenital heart disease. That's a nice little scapegoat for me. But I find it fascinating. I've been diagnosed with ADHD myself, and I didn't realize that the two could actually be linked. So that's very interesting. It's a whole spectrum of challenges for some of our children you know children can still do very well at school within that so I have a range of children who are performing quite well and you know I'm old enough now that children are leaving school so I've got kids going to university I've kids doing apprenticeships so they're still out in the community and doing very well but they've you know I know a lot of my families unfortunately they've had to work harder at school they've had to engage the school on the way through and things like that to get there. And it's nice though, once if you know they do put in the work, once they get the reward for it, and that's it's, right, you know, gives you a nice dopamine release in the brain. And so. I think it is helpful for the families to have recognition that it's it actually goes with the heart disease. It's not a problem from the family or problem from the child, and that it's a problem. But then they've got understanding and they can work with it. That's generally the first step to fixing something is understanding the underlying problem. So. Let's get into the diagnosis, screening and intervention. What are some early indicators that a child might be experiencing neurodevelopmental difficulties? So I think in the baby, it's just really looking at the normal milestones like walking, 
speech development, those types of things. I think at school age it becomes much more complex and really you're looking for markers. You know, a child might be struggling at school, either it can be as simple as being perceived as being a troubled child in the classroom and there's, often there's a reason for it rather than the child being a problem child. And then when you look at it more carefully, the child might be struggling to learn specific things. And then similarly, they're the sort of things you look for in high school as well. I guess poor performance, either socially or academically. And the parent, in, I think you, as medical practitioners and allied health people, we can do tests to test for these things. And there's discussion, you know, I think it's very important that children should have access to testing throughout their lifetime, but it actually is the parents and the school teachers who are probably most attuned to their child and need to be the advocate for their child in that space and within the health environment. I find it fascinating that obviously I've had an open heart surgery and there was no stages that at least I remember that, you know, I could have had developmental issues with, you know, and especially hindrances within my own school from my heart condition. So is this research relatively new or how long has it been around? I think there's been awareness since the 80s. The original work was it came out of Boston and children had transposition of the great vessels, which is a complex heart disease condition. And there was evidence that at, you know, the develop, formal developmental assessments at one year of age weren't normal. It's spread way beyond that. So I think it's an evolving area. In Queensland, there's been an interest of sort of 10 or 15 years. And it's, you know, it's one of the f- major pillars of congenital heart disease now in the country. As a group of cardiologists and involved nurses and adult health workers around the country where develop models of care for children and there's sort of pillars of model of care for children with congenital heart disease and neurodevelopment and neuropsychology is one of the six pillars in that. So it is becoming an increasing focus of our work because our survival rates are so good and our children are growing up into adults. That's awesome. If parents are concerned about that their children might be experiencing neurodevelopmental delays, who in their healthcare team should they be speaking to? So I think it's probably who they have easiest and best access to. I think, and it also depends where they are, you know, how old the child is and where they are in their journey. Obviously, most of the children will be seeing a cardiologist on a regular basis. So that's certainly some of the, it's a very good person to raise their concerns with. The cardiologist isn't always the best equipped person to actually help with the problem specifically but certainly most of us now have very good knowledge and guidance and can point families in the right direction. More importantly I think the relationship with the GP and I think talking with the GP because the GP will have access to those and also if many of the children involve the general paediatrician. So I guess they're the first points of call. Beyond that then you really need to have involvement with people who can support the child and help them and that can be within the educational setting at the school so the schools and the school teachers are a very good resource for getting assessments and help and then allied health people such as occupational therapists, physiotherapists, speech therapists and psychologists, particularly psychologists in the adolescent age group so they're the types of people that you need to gain access to. In saying that the health system is not well geared for providing those types of services so and I think as a cardiologist we recognize that there's a lot of work and growth to happen in this space to improve the care for these children and for them to get access to these services that they need. Well even though you said it's you know it was research started in the 80s that's still relatively new in the terms of science and understanding so sure there's a long way to go for everybody. So how are neurodevelopmental issues diagnosed and how are they screened for in children? So there's really no, 
if you talk about Australia, there's no set screening program for our children. I think we have a very strong ambition for that to happen. So in, in the ideal world, our at-risk children would have screening probably at 18 months, school entry, probably about the age of 9 to 10, and then maybe at the time of exiting school. There, and there are formal types of assessment for neurodevelopment. To actually perform that on, you know, have all of our children have access to a formal neurodevelopmental assessment is a, a large resource. And, you know, to do a formal assessment on a nine-year-old probably would take half a day or a day. So it's very resource intense. And I think at the moment we're working out how the best way to deliver that sort of care is. Certainly there's more simple screening things and it may be that that's a better way to go is to have all children access to screening thing because we know not all of our children are affected and those that flag on more simple screening measures then would have a much more detailed assessment and then hopefully those children who are identified with specific problems would they be funneled into, would be channeled to appropriate resources for therapy. And what types of interventions are available to those at risk? So I think this really falls predominantly into the allied health area. So if children have, say, issues with motor abilities, physiotherapists and occupational therapists would be the best type of group to go to. If you look at our teenagers, a lot of them have learning issues, but they also may have issues with interacting with families, hyperactivity, depression can be a problem in the adolescent age group. So they're more likely to be asked, particularly I think psychologists are particularly important in that age group, and then occupational therapists and speech therapists. So it depends on the issue and where the child is in the journey, the type of people you may access. I think also the schools and educational, getting specific educational support can be very important as well. Yeah, well, it's sort of a recurring theme for us coming up in this podcast that how stress is incredibly damaging to our health and recovery. And obviously having neurodevelopmental issues can add stress. And like you said, you know, with ADHD, I know how much of a pain that's been in my life, but then also depression and anxiety. Like, you know, if, if a child's, especially if they've just gone through heart surgery and they've already got these underlying conditions and then the added stress can really hinder the recovery process for that. That's right, because the child does worry about their heart and we see it, you know, unfortunately many of our adult, you know, children have had surgeries, a baby might require a second operation as adolescent. That can be really stressful, disruptive and take a lot. They get over the physical side of it, but the trauma of it really can take them quite a bit to get over sometimes and have a more prolonged impact. And I think one thing we've moved from is, you know, 20 years ago, there's sort of the thought you'd have a heart operation that fixed your heart and then you were right for life. But I think increasingly we're aware it's it's a much more complex disease than that and we have an obligation and a desire to care for these children and young adults to ensure all the other parts of their lives are as good as they can be. Yeah, we've, we've obviously come so far in medical research, especially in the last even decade. So... And a big part of that is our understanding of the brain and how all that mental health side of it can impact us. So it's going to be awesome to see where this research goes over the next you know, rest of this decade and it's amazing work. Yeah, and I think that the technology of the surgery has improved a lot, but because it's so multifactorial, there's a couple of studies that have looked at things longitudinally over time and there hasn't. You know, I think there's evidence there's been slight improvement in the outcomes from a neurodevelopmental point of view, but it still has, there's been no major breakthroughs. And I think it's probably, un, you know, my sense is it will get incremental improvements, but probably no major breakthroughs. And we still will be left with supporting families and children to get the best outcomes.
all in due time though. That's right. But I think that's about it, us for now, Rob. I want to thank you on behalf of myself, the wider Heart Kids team, but then also the entire Heart Kids community for the work and dedication that you're putting into such amazing research. Thanks very much. Appreciated. It's been good talking to you. Thank you, Rob. Cheers. For the second part of this episode, I'm joined by Professor Will Parsonage to talk about his team's research that could transform neurodevelopmental care for young cardiac patients in Australia. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Will. Where are you joining us from? I am on the QUT campus at Calvin Grove down in Brisbane. Your team is leading a research program investigating models of care for neurodevelopment in CHD patients called CHD Life Plus. What is it all about? So this is really a study where we've partnered, research group at QUT have partnered with the folks at Children's Health and it's really looking at identifying better ways of providing for children and their families with congenital heart disease, particularly with regard to neurodevelopment. So what is the vision behind CHD Life Plus? How is it designed to change neurodevelopmental care for young CHD patients and their families? The very specialised services that are needed tend to be very centralised. They're in the big metro centres around the large hospitals. And that's true, really, certainly true in Queensland, and it's true really across the country. But that doesn't fit well with, you know, where people live and so on, because we know these conditions don't pick out people that live in particular places. So Rob, Justo and his team have developed a program where they can deliver those services in a decentralised way, so much closer to where people live, where they need those services to be. And they've been doing that for some time. There's been a lot of interest in the way they do that and the potential for those services to provide better care for the children and their families. And so we've set up this program of research looking at sort of as a number of phases. So to assess the program as it currently stands, and then also to look more broadly nationally at what other programs exist and what those what we call models of care look like around the country so we've got good buy-in with this project with all the other jurisdictions in the country then we want to do some work around simulating what the chd life program would look like in other jurisdictions both from the effectiveness and also there are cost implications to doing these things as well So looking at the cost effectiveness and the effectiveness of delivering that type of program in other places. And so that really takes it towards the end of the project, although what we hope to have at the end of that is a sort of usable model of care that people can use to apply to their local jurisdiction. And they may then choose to move towards that. And that's the CHD Life Plus part. Yeah, it's very important that we get, obviously, the care out into our regional centres. You know, when, when I was growing up with my heart condition, we had to commute a fair fair way and big daunting. I'm a, I'm a small country boy, so coming out in, and going into the big smoke that is Brisbane was quite a daunting task. But you Yeah, know, where, did you grow up? where did you grow up, Sam? So I was originally born in Cairns, and that's where my yep. original condition was found, I guess. And then we moved down sort of towards a bit closer to Brisbane and we Toowoomba and everything like that. So just out past Toowoomba and yeah, so spent a little bit of time around the countryside in Queensland. And yeah, the big smoke, like I said, was catching the trains into the city was a terrifying experience for a young fellow like me. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's absolutely central to the problem we're trying to address here. 
Yeah. We've spoken to a few guests as well that are in regional centres and even other practitioners that are out in the regional centres and it's obviously very difficult for for them to get the care that they sort of need. So it's amazing what you guys are doing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the other thing is, the other big strength of this research is that it's reaching broadly to talk to people from, you know, both patients, their families and the people providing their care to make sure that the model is something that people do prefer and find better. I mean, for some people, maybe they prefer to come into the city and go to the larger hospital, but others maybe not. And that's why it's really important, I think, that we do this so that we develop a system that does the best for the most people. Yeah, that's exactly right. So how is the research being funded and which organisations are involved in supporting the CHD Life Plus program? Okay, as we just said, this requires broad reach and a significant body of work. So we've been really lucky in getting this funded. The big part of the funding was a successful grant application to the Medical Research Future Fund. So part of that, people may have heard of that source of funding for medical research in Australia, which was set up some years ago. A portion of that has been put aside for research into cardiovascular disease specifically and a portion of that was put specifically into researching cardiovascular disease in children and we were beneficiaries of that grant round a couple of years ago. We've needed important strength in partnership as well and we've had great buy-in really with clinicians and health services around the country including all the states and territories, really, including New South Wales, Victoria, WA, Northern Territory, South Australia. And so we have clinicians who are working in those areas who are actually active participants in running the research study. We've also had a number of other funding partners who've come alongside that as well, including the MARTA Research Institute and, really importantly, HeartKids partners on this research grant as well. It's awesome that these charities are getting behind you and supporting it because it's obviously crucial for us to get out there. And you know, it's hard for GPs in these regional centres to get the access to this kind of support as well, which is awesome. So let us know, where's the project up to and what are the next steps? So it's, without going into too much detail, it's a sort of six-phase programme of research. And the first two phases of that are coming to fruition, which have been those things I was mentioning about mapping the existing service and looking at the cost of delivering that service and that current model of care with CHD Life. And we're now moving into the next phase, which is that broader engagement with clinicians around the country. And hopefully by the end of the year, we will have completed a series of interviews with those clinicians from all those different jurisdictions. So we have, at that point, a good picture of what the CHD Life program looks like and a good picture of what's going on elsewhere in the country. That will also involve talking to children and families about what those services look like as well. And that's when we'll be able to start then moving into more of that work, looking at how the CHD Life Plus program might work in other areas of the country as well. And that work will carry on for the next couple of years. Where can our listeners go for more information? So two things. We our research group called OSHI, QUT, has a website that outlines all of our current research projects, including this. So OSHI is a bit of a difficult spelling, but if people go to www.oshi.org.au, or if they just Google OSHI, A-U-S-H-S-I, that'll take them there. 
And as the project progresses, we start to get the outcomes from the research project. We'll be disseminating that broadly and hopefully through the Heart Kids channels as well. And for the listeners at home, we'll have the link to the website in our podcasting notes as well. So you'll be able to jump in and follow that link there. Is there any more information that you'd like to share, Will? No, not today. Thanks for inviting me. It's, I think, you know, it's important that people understand what the research is and, you know, how it potentially is going to impact things in the future, we hope, in a very positive way. Yeah, I'm sure that as it continues to roll out, you know, you guys will be imperative in, in a lot of people's healing journeys. So from the bottom of my heart, Heart Kids and the wider Heart family, thank you very much for all the hard work that you're doing. And thank you for coming on to the podcast. If this episode has brought up anything for you or you need some advice or guidance on your CHD journey, you can call the Heart Kids helpline on 1-800-432-785. To access more information as well as find out more about the support Heart Kids offers, visit the website at heartkids.org.au. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice from your doctor or healthcare team. Always talk to your doctor about matters that affect yours or your family's health.